Well, good morning and welcome to our service. As Stephen said, my name's Craig. I serve as minister in training here at St. Peter's. And of course, we carry on our series this morning looking at James chapter 4. And over the past few weeks, we've been seeing how James has been helping some churches where some Christians are behaving badly towards one another. He's gone through some of their, some of their attitudes towards each other, some of the things that they've been doing and saying. And he said, actually, these things are just symptoms. The main problem you have is that you are double-minded. You are too sold towards God. And so, as he says in chapter 4, committing spiritual adultery against God. He said that the reason why you have dysfunctional relationships with one another is because you have a dysfunctional relationship with God. But, as we saw towards the end last week, God gives more grace. His grace is greater than their double-mindedness. His grace is greater than our double-mindedness. So in response to God's grace, that's the, that's the foundation all this is being built on. In response to God's grace, James calls his readers to humbly repent of their sin and seek to live wholeheartedly towards God. Now what we see this week is James beginning to specifically apply what that looks like in different areas of life. But before we dig into that, let me pray and ask God for his help. Well, our Father, we thank you again for your word. May you help us to receive your word humbly this morning. May you help us to live wholeheartedly, single-mindedly after you. May you help us, we ask, to be not simply hearers of your word, but doers of it also. And so may you incline our hearts to your word, not to anything this world has to offer us. Open our eyes, we ask, to see wonderful things in your word this morning. Unite our hearts in reverent fear of you and satisfy our hearts in your steadfast, covenant, faithful love, we ask. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What we have in 4.11 to 5.6 is, is three trouble areas in this church. And James wants to help this church to live single-minded, to live humbly before God in each of these areas. There are three situations specific to the church that James is writing to, but I think what we'll find is that they're still very helpful and very applicable for us as well today. Look at the first two this week, and then, God willing, I think, uh, with Sinclair next week. Here's our two points for this morning. Living humbly before God means not slandering one another. That's verses 11 to 12. And living humbly before God means not planning presumptuously. That's verses 13 to 17. Let's look at the first one. Living humbly before God means not slandering one another. It's quite obvious, isn't it? I have a look at verse 11. It's pretty black and white. Brothers and sisters, 
Do not slander one another. Do not speak about someone in the church in such a way to to bring them down, to make them look worse. Don't gossip. Don't speculate negative things about people. It's quite a simple command, isn't it? Well, in principle anyway, but in practice, well, it's something much more difficult, isn't it? I mean, the wording here, it's not just gossip. The language of verse 11, it's something more like, do not speak against one another. Do not speak down on one another. So it isn't simply saying, don't just tell lies about people, but also means don't say things that are true about someone, but said to bring them down. What does that look like in real life? Well, in my experience, most people think it's okay to pass on negative information about somebody as long as it's true. Well, it's not really gossip, is it? Because we know it's true. James says, no, don't do that to your brother and sister. That's not humble living. I mean, it's it's clearly bad, isn't it? Slander, gossip, this negative speech. But why do we do it? Why do we speak against one another? Well, it's because we're proud, isn't it? We don't want to live humble lives. And it's also because we're encouraged in it. Many of us, I'm sure, have, have things or, or people. In one sense, it's quite nice not having anyone here because there's no one I can accidentally look at here. Because if we're honest, sometimes there are just people who, who, who just get under our skin, who we have to work really hard to be patient with. And sometimes you can find a friend who you know just has the same frustrations and bugbears as you about that person, about that thing. And so the two of you can, can come together and talk about it and have, and have a good old moan about it. And that's just the thing you do with that person. Well, James says, no, it's slander. That's speaking down against somebody. About your brother, about your sister. And sometimes we, we get away with it as well. And it looks like you know, someone says something and you just go, ah, oh, classic so-and-so. Well, of course they do that. That's what they always do. I think it's a, this is particularly more common just now, I think, with Zoom meetings and whatnot. You know, just not the private chat, a cheap dig to a, to a friend in a private chat about the person speaking. If you're speaking against others in this way, it's not humbling ourselves before God. It's pride. And we do it, do it so, that, so that we can get a boost, so that the hearer can get a boost in their pride as well. But don't mishear me, though, on what I'm saying. James isn't talking here about the elder warning people against false teachers. James isn't talking about a friend who's taken you aside and unlovingly, humbly, is rebuking you for being selfish. You can't take this passage and shove it back in, your, in their face if someone's doing that for you. See, the humble person has genuine concern for their brothers and sisters. Because that's what we see with James here. 
He's helping his brothers and sisters in Christ who've been slandering one another to humbly walk before God. See, that's, that's, that's the what that's going on, isn't it? What are they doing? They're slandering. <clears throat> Pardon me. What are they doing? They're slandering. But why? Why aren't we to slander one another? Well, let's look at the text again. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. James is saying that if you slander a brother or sister in Christ, you speak evil against the law and judge the law. (laughs) But what does that mean? It's quite a lot going in there. It's a bit confusing, I think. So, let's break it down. Question. What is the law that James is referring to here? Well, a helpful question to always ask is, where has this term appeared elsewhere in the book? Where else has James spoken about the law? Of course, it's back in chapter 2 in verse 8. Let me read that for us. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So I take it that James has in mind that the one who speaks against a brother or sister in Christ is breaking this law. The law is, of course, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because slander isn't loving your neighbor as yourself. So when you listened to that slander, When you took part in that conversation, when you fed your desire to feel better than somebody else, were you loving your neighbour as yourself? James says, of course you weren't. And we know that deep down, don't we? See, when someone tells you something, just think, how much of that information about someone did I really need to know? How much of that information was essential for, for the unity of the church, for my, for my survival in everyday life? Chances are, probably not much of it. Instead, when that happens, we're standing in God's place, acting as the judge. See, in all three of these, these scenarios James gives us, there's a real... Boom, big humbling sentence in all of them. Here comes the first one in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James says, who do you even think you are to speak like that? You want the lawgiver, you want the judge, who do you think you are? And again, let's be clear what James means here. James isn't speaking about when we speak the truth and love to somebody in rebuking them. This judging is looking down on somebody, gossiping about them. It's, look how so-and-so brings up their children. Look how so-and-so dresses for church on a Sunday. Why does so-and-so always do that annoying thing? Have you noticed them do that before? I bet you won't miss it now. When we do that, we stand in God's place. I 
And imagine if to become a Christian, God first had to speak to us like that. Like God had to speak to us like, like we might to other people. Wouldn't that be awful? And boy, does he know a lot more about us than we do other people. But God doesn't do that. Generally speaking, God doesn't show our sin, our shortcomings to other people. So why do we? Who are we to build ourselves up while putting other people down? James doesn't want his readers to be hypocrites. He doesn't want them to be double-minded. The double-minded person is a slanderer, the one putting their brother and sister in Christ down, wants to build their own reputation. Now, James here is not talking about the person who's, who's, who's joined in some gossip and they're really aware of that and they want to repent from it. Remember last week, the single-minded Christian is a repentant Christian. Instead, James wants us to be humble before God. And humility looks like speaking well of one another. Humility is caring for your brother and sister. Humility is caring about their, their eternal end, not wanting a brother and sister to, hum, uh, to wander. Living humbly before God looks like not slandering one another. Next, we see James goes on to say that living humbly before God means not planning presumptuously. Let me read our passage again from verse 13. And think in your head, where is the pride in this section and where is the humility needed? Have a look from verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do fails to do it. For him, it is sin. Well, what's going on here in this passage? Well, it's a five-year plan, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I love a good meme on the internet. I don't know if you're aware about memes. You've got, you've got a picture and a caption beside it. And I wonder if you've seen the meme doing the rounds just now where you've got uh, Marty McFly from Back to the Future beside his time-traveling DeLorean car and the doc is standing there warning Marty McFly, whatever you do, don't travel to the year 2020. See, I, I guarantee that every five-year plan there was not one single five-year plan that correctly predicted the year 2020 was there. See, and that's true of all five-year plans, isn't it? We can't predict things. So the issue here in these verses is that it's a plan to get money. But in this plan, God's nowhere. He's been left out of the picture. It assumes that everything will go on as expected. There'll be no interruptions, that everything will be predictable and come the end of their five-year plan, everything will be perfect. And well, 
there's part of that's true. There's a lot of life that, that is predictable, isn't there? I mean, is your diary empty? Probably not. I, I, I assume not. Because you expect to do something at a certain time, perhaps with certain people. And that's good and right. The Bible's not anti-planning. In fact, I would argue it often is for planning. See, spontaneity somehow isn't more spiritual. But what James is talking about here is planning with God out of the picture. And that's really easy to do in our day-to-day life, isn't it? Just get caught up with what's going on, to go from one thing to another. And if we're honest, well, God's nowhere in the picture. And at very best, he probably wasn't in the driving seat. And James says that this isn't just ungodly, but it's arrogant. It's double-minded to confess that Christ is Lord, but then live like the rest of the world as if he doesn't exist. I'm a planner. I like forward planning. Perhaps you've got a five-year plan, 10-year plan. Let me ask you a question. What's your million-year plan? In a million years, where will you be? Well, if you're in Christ, you'll be with him. What about tomorrow? We don't know what tomorrow will bring. As Christians, we can be sure, confident about what lies way ahead of us. But tomorrow, well, we can't be so confident about that. Now we can see what's in the diary. We can check the weather. We can make all sorts of plans about tomorrow. We can have backup plans as well. It's going to be good weather, plan to do this. But just in case it rains, we'll do this instead. But ultimately, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And yet we plan as if we do. You know, we've booked off our next block of annual leave. We've, we've planned the work trip away. We've planned the kids' play date. We've got the deadline. Everything's all lined up. These things that go in our diary, and it's as if they're set in stone. Because my Google Calendar says it'll happen, thus says Google Calendar, it will happen. And what we see here in these verses, it's as if James sits us down. He's heard us talking about our plans, our dreams for what's going to happen in the future. He said, you've got all these plans for what you're going to do, but you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. But James takes it up a level. He says, actually, your life's not about you. You're a mist. You're like the the steam on the bathroom mirror after a shower, but you open the window and the steam's gone, forgotten about. You're like the mist on the the inside of a car on a cold day. You turn up the, the fan, it's gone and it's forgotten about. Your life is a mist. It's like your breath on a cold morning. It's there and it's gone. It's forgotten about. So we need to remember that our lives, they're short. And in the grand scheme of things, no one's really going to remember them. Just think, here's a question. What was the name of your great-grandfather? 
you might know. That's wonderful. What was the name of your, your great-great-grandmother? It's seen about 100 years or so. We're gone. We're forgotten about. What reminds our fears is that our life is a mist. It's gone. We're not the captain of our souls. We are not the author of our own stories. We look at our diaries for the week ahead and they're like a screenplay for the drama of our lives where of course we have the starring role and all that James says without God is arrogant. It's arrogant to plan out your whole life as if you're the author of space and time. Verse 13 is like the person who says, no, I'll come here and I'll do this for a while. I'll get this degree, then I'll get that job and then I'll get married at this age. And after so many years, I'll start having to have this many number of kids. And then after that, we'll move to this part of town. James says, no. All that is arrogant. See, what James encourages us to do here is to plan with God in the picture. And godly planning is kingdom planning. It's recognizing that your life is not about you. You're missed. You're here. Then you're gone. Life is to be lived under the reality of the God who is eternal, who has plans much greater than us. Our life is to be lived recognizing who he is, seeking to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. See, arrogant planning is what we see in verse 13. It's, it's double-minded planning. It's planning, ultimately, you see here, so this person can get rich. Double-minded planning, arrogant planning, is planning so that you can get stuff. Stuff for you, stuff for your family. You know what you want to do, when and where, so that you can be comfortable. You plan so that your kids can get to a better school. You plan and you plan and you plan, but it's all selfish. Then you give money to the work of the gospel to appease your conscience. Because actually you realise that your whole life is based around your selfish planning and God's been nowhere in the picture. That's arrogant double-minded planning. But please don't mishear me here. In this example James gives us in verse 13, the big aim in these plans is to make money. Now, money is not a bad thing in and of itself. Of course it's not. We need money to, to survive. We need money for ourselves, for our families. We need money to help others. All of my income is from people giving gifts and donations. But if our aim is to make money like this person here in verse 13, then we live just like the rest of the world. If we are to compare our diaries to our non-Christian neighbours' diaries, do they look that different? Or do our lives just revolve around us as well? Look at your diary and ask, what is driving my week? Am I being driven by what matters most to God? Am I being driven for his glory or for mine and for my priorities? To ask the question, are the things of this world slowly choking me out? We might be tempted to say, maybe when things calm down, I'll, I'll start doing this thing or that thing. And actually, we never really get around to, to joining a fellowship group. 
Or I'm, or I'm just too busy to fit that in just now. And so you're no longer striving to meet up with fellow saints, to be part of the church, to serve, to read your Bible, to pray. And then you're nowhere. Or I think if only the schools were better in that place, I'd go and serve the Lord there. And so you choose extracurricular activities for your children instead of wanting people to hear about Jesus in that place. See, James offers us a new perspective on life here. In our planning, bring God into the picture. Bring him into the picture in how you plan. Instead, when we're planning, we should say, if the Lord wills. Dio volante, DV, God willing. Not for it to become like a mantra for us, but to actively bring God into the picture. To say that I will do this. I will commit to it if Jesus doesn't come back. If God still wants me to be alive, then I will be there. I will do that thing. James doesn't want us to add DV to our emails or to say Lord willing when we're arranging to meet someone for coffee. He wants our attitude to change. He wants us to live single-mindedly, knowing that God is the one in control and we submit our lives to him. It means that as I, as I plan, as I seek God's will, I look at what's happening and I'm informed by what's around me, but my plans are not the last word. God's word is. As the well-known proverb says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. What we see in these two scenarios here is that the double-minded person has no real regard for Jesus. Their priority is themselves and their own little kingdom. And some of us listening just need to be told sometimes, stop wanting control over your life. If I'm honest, very often that's me. No, I, I'm a big forward planner. I want to know what's ahead. I want to know what we're working towards. What is the, the goal we're working for? And there's a danger in this mindset, a danger that we become so rigid that we drift into arrogance and we're not open to the Lord. Danger of missing what's right in front of us, what's right there that needs doing. And so we sin. Too busy with our plans to, to love and care for our families too busy with our, our own thing to care for the poor, the needy, the lonely. But some of us listening might just be double-minded. We want to control everything because our biggest concern is our business venture, our biggest concern is our family, not the Lord. And we need James' help if that's us. We need to see the perspective that our life is just a mist. We need to grasp the eternality of God and his kingdom compared to our, our short, insignificant plans in comparison. See, one of the things that James has taught us in the last few weeks is that what we think about God is shown in what we think about other people. We see that again here, don't we, in these sections? What we know about God and how he has treated us informs how we treat one another. 
What we know about God's eternality and our fragility shapes how we live and what we live for today. See, being right with God is often shown in how we treat other people. But let's remember what we ended with last week. God gives more grace. So as he says in verse 11, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What does that look like? Well, here we see that living humbly before God means not slandering one another. And living humbly before God means not planning presumptuously. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we confess that we are often guilty of these things. That our minds drift from you and into our own little worlds where we are the captain of our souls. Please forgive us, we ask. Forgive us of the times where we, we put other people down to boost ourselves up. Forgive us of the times where we live and plan where you are nowhere in the picture. Father, we want to live wholehearted lives. We want to live single-mindedly. We want to live humbly before you. So by your grace, we ask, help us to be not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word also. And help us to save the wandering brother, the wandering sister who was walking off. Father, give us a closer walk with you, we ask. For you are our joy. You are our delight. We want to live our lives forever before your face. And it's in the name of Christ, our King, we pray. Amen.